welcome to Brain for Business, your podcast for all things brain, behavioral, and organizational sciences. It's great to have you with us. As always, to listen back to past episodes, make sure to check out our website, brainforbusiness.ie, and feel free to drop us a note via the website with any comments, feedback, or even questions that you might have. As of 2022, the World Health Organization estimates that more than 1 billion people worldwide are obese, 650 million adults, 340 million adolescents, and 39 million children. Given that there are approximately 8 billion people on the planet, that is equivalent to 12.5% of the global population. This situation is made all the worse by the seeming impossibility in many developed countries of avoiding cheap, processed food, which is high in calories, salt and sugar, while also being incredibly low in nutrition. At the same time, evidence linking obesity and substance use disorders continues to grow, which has led to increased interest in the role of an addictive process in problematic eating behaviour. To find out more about the challenges of food addiction, I am delighted to be joined today by Professor Ashley Gerhardt. Ashley Gerhardt is an Associate Professor of Psychology in the Clinical Science area at the University of Michigan. While working on her doctorate in clinical psychology at Yale University, Dr. Gerhardt became interested in the possibility that certain foods may be capable of triggering an addictive process. To explore this further, she developed the Yale Food Addiction Scale to operationalize addictive eating behaviors, which has been linked with more frequent binge eating episodes, an increased prevalence of obesity, and patterns of neural activation implicated in other addictive behaviors. The scale has been cited over 800 times and translated into over 10 foreign languages. Her areas of research also include investigating how food advertising activates reward systems to drive eating behavior and the development of food preferences and eating patterns in infants. Ashley has published over 100 academic publications and her research has been featured on media outlets such as ABC News, Good Morning America, The Today Show, The Wall Street Journal and NPR. Ashley, welcome to Brain for Business. It's absolutely my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. We might start by, I guess, dealing with possibly the simple things. What is an addiction? That's a great question. And I would say, you know, the way that the field is most in agreement of how to measure that is based on whether people are experiencing certain behavioral indicators. Um, so, you know, I think there's a little bit of this belief that maybe we could image someone's brain or take some sort of blood marker and look at their genes and know whether they had an addiction or not. But really how we diagnose addictions is that we look at whether people are showing um, signs in their behavior, like a loss of control over their consumption, you know, intense cravings frequently where they can't think of anything else, that they're continuing to use in this really driven way, even though they're having negative consequences in their life and their mental health and their physical health, and that all of these sorts of behaviors are combining to lead them to either really feel very distressed or to experience some significant impairment in their life. And so is the key then that word uh, continuous that you mentioned there, it's not just a one-off, I am going to have an extra couple of cookies when really I shouldn't, but it's a continuous ongoing process of those sorts of behaviors. Absolutely. So we know this, whether it's with food or alcohol, that really it, it seems like 
uh, addiction is more on a spectrum. Like we know most people use addictive substances in their life, even if we're ignoring food. You know, 90% of people drink alcohol at some point in their life. About 15% of people in their lifetime would meet the criteria for what we call an alcohol use disorder, kind of maps onto that, that spectrum of really addictive risk. And then there's a lot of people who really kind of aren't necessarily in the point where they would need some clinical help or anything, but that, you know, they're kind of tying one on every once in a while, having a binge drinking episode, you know, celebrating for a New Year's Eve. Those aren't completely risk-free, right? You know, you can end up with a bad hangover (laughs) or make a bad decision, um, but that it's not quite the same as when it's happening in your life pretty consistently. You want to stop, you're suffering, there are problems, and it keeps continuing to be a problem. But I would say people kind of think, oh, you're an addict or you're not. It's black and white. And it really is a much more of a spectrum of risk. And you can kind of move along that spectrum um, many different times in your life. And so I think knowing where you are and what your relationship is with addictive substances or addictive behaviors can be really helpful. Well, if it, if it's a spectrum and it's much more nuanced than a, a binary, either addicted or not, What percentage of people would you say are actually addicted to food as opposed to people who who perhaps simply like food too much? That's it's such a good point. And, you know, actually, it's really similar. The prevalence that we see in this relationship with highly processed foods, you know, I want to kind of just kind of touch on that for a second is that we don't see that people show those consistent signs of addiction, that loss of control, the intense cravings, the continuing to use it even though it's making you ill with things like watermelon and chicken breast and broccoli. It's really about the sort of highly processed, often ultra industrially processed foods that are engineered and designed to be intensely rewarding, inspire you to have maximum craveability, to really hit your bliss point. The industry says this is what they're doing when they're trying to create these foods, and I believe them. Um, and you, know, what we see is that on average, the average person in our modern food environment that are just totally inundated with these products experiences like at least one symptom of addiction, you know, a little bit um, prone to maybe lose control or you, you want to cut down, you know, your doctor said that your uh, blood sugar is a little high and you're trying to cut down and you're finding that challenging. But when it comes to applying that exact same level of kind of behavioral um, indicators of addiction and impairment and distress, we see that about 15% of adults appear to be meeting that addiction threshold and about 12% of children. And that's kind of unheard of. You know, kids are usually protected against addictive substances like alcohol and cannabis and cigarettes. You know, they're not as marketed to as heavily. They can't access it as easily. And um, with these highly processed foods, the majority of calories, at least in the United States and the UK, for children is from these very highly processed foods. If, as you're saying, food addiction seems to be, well, I'm going to use the word correlated, you might say there's a causal relationship, and of course, I'd be open to to that. But, But if it is correlated with heavily processed foods, would that suggest then that food addiction is quite a modern phenomenon? Or has it always existed in different forms? 
I, I think it's pretty clear that it's a modern phenomenon. There's probably been small percentages of people at different moments when things like refined sugars and refined fats became more accessible. I always think of uh, the royalty in the UK, you know, like uh, it would be King Henry. And they, you know, so many of them had gouts and, you know, were really eating excessively. But they were the only people in society who had, you know, a lot of money uh, to access sugar. I mean, sugar was so expensive and so rare to get for so long that it was really considered more of a spice or a medicine. And you just didn't see people aggressively binging on, you know, a plain potato in that same way as they would on the delicious, like, sugary treats and fatty treats that became available. What's really happened um, is that through our technological advancements, we've gotten really good at stripping out um, sugars and fats or creating chemical concoctions like artificial sweeteners that mimic the effects of sugar and refining those in cheap, potent ways where we combine them in these unique, novel, rewarding food substances. I mean, natural foods, whole foods, they're either high in carbohydrates, like a fruit or a potato, or they're high in fat, like a nut or some meat. But for a food substance to really deliver high doses of both carbs and fats is, is doesn't really exist in nature that much. Now, when we go to the grocery store with our pizza and our chocolate and our candy bars, that is commonplace to get a naturally high doses of sugar and fat that our brain was evolved to find that really rewarding and reinforcing to make sure we don't starve. I think it's the same way. Like nicotine is in foods like cauliflower and eggplant, right? People aren't like uh, obsessively consuming eggplant to the point to get a nicotine fix. It's when you create ultra processed, you know, tobacco uh, refined cigarettes that rapidly deliver high doses of nicotine into the brain and really potent packages that you see people start to struggle. And that's what I would argue is happening with our food supply. And we can see this kind of this domino effect happening around the world that as the Western ultra processed food environment goes from country to country through globalization, that's when we start to see obesity and diabetes and binge type eating start to skyrocket. We don't see that as much in countries where the food environment is more sane. And your point about the the, the royalty of, of of European countries historically r reminds me of that that comment or that adage I've heard a number of times that once upon a time the the only people who were overweight or obese were rich. Now the people who are overweight and obese are are the poor. The the rich are actually the the ones who are slimmer these days. Absolutely, depending on what country you're in. So if you're in the UK and in the US. Absolutely. Like that's it's if you are richer, you have now access and time to get the minimally processed, nourishing whole foods. You have time to exercise and things like that. And if you're poor, you don't have access in the same way and you're inundated. Like I think the we focused a lot on food deserts, the idea that you know you don't have grocery stores and you don't have access to the healthy foods if you're poor in the US. But it's not just that, it's also food swamps where the zoning is, allows there to be like junk food establishments 
just in really dense, dense ways in poor communities, fast food, restaurants, bodegas, every corner. So you're also getting constantly triggered and targeted by the marketing, by the golden arches, by the, you know, the, the advertisement for Mountain Dew in the corner. So it's both. And then when we look at countries that it's kind of flipped where for a long time in India, only um, people who have had more money could access McDonald's and Coca-Cola and the processed foods from the West. And the poorer um, communities were still really subsisting on minimally processed real food. And there the obesity is with, uh, and the diabetes and the binging is with the richer people. So it really does seem to be who has access to these sorts of foods that have been altered and refined in ways that our brains have not evolved to handle. Beyond those, I guess, sort of wealth equality measures that we were talking about there, are there other sort of key demographic differences or factors to consider things like gender or, or, or age or education that might come into play? Yes. So, um, you know, we're seeing when it comes to gender with eating disorders, you see that it's overwhelmingly, um, you know, people who identify as female that are you know, 80 percent or more of the eating disorders. Um, when it comes to actually conceptualizing this as a substance, you know, an addiction to the substance, it looks um, it's much more equitable. Um, Meta-analyses have found it to be you know, pretty similar actually across men and women. There's some studies that have found that it's a little bit higher in women, but overall it seems to be more of an equal opportunity issue because we're all getting exposed to these you know, addictive foods. Um, when it comes, we're seeing a lot of, um, at least in the United States, we haven't found huge racial ethnic differences. Um, we Again, we see uh, people who are less well-resourced to have less money that often correlates with less education are um, experiencing higher exposure and, and higher consequences related to these sorts of foods. And then, you know, we're really getting a sense that there may be cohort effects, so age effects. Uh, we were just analyzing some data looking at older adults, um, people over the age of 55, and then it was really the cohort of people who were about in their 55 to 70s had more symptoms of food addiction relative to those who are 70 years of age or older. And we've seen this now in a couple different samples. And I think what's happened is we really kind of, at least in the US, pinpoint the time period in which the food environment really started to change in a more intense way is the late 1970s and early 80s. And that is when our technology got better, we got better at making high fructose corn syrup and trans fats. Um, we also, big tobacco was coming under heat for the addictive nature of their tobacco products. And uh, RJ Reynolds, Philip Morris, they diversified their portfolios by buying up craft uh, and General Mills, and they became the biggest creators, producers, and marketers of processed food around the globe for decades. Um, and so they took a lot of their know-how from creating cigarettes and applied that to their food portfolios. And so our food environment, the marketing around them, the, the, the development of them really changed in that time period. And we know that the younger you are when you're exposed to addictive substances, the more vulnerable you can be to them. Well, there's cohort effects. Like I was born in 82. And so for me, I grew up my whole life in this kind of 
toxic food environments of, of processed foods in the marketing. Whereas people who are older than I am, maybe it didn't change for them until they were in their 30s or 40s. And so they had you know, kind of really important formative developmental years where they weren't being as inundated and marketed to and exposed to these sorts of foods. And so we, we, it, I think it's concerning when we see that 12% of children are already showing clinical signs of an addiction to these foods. What does that mean as they age? And that even more people are gonna have longer times of experience and maybe they transition into that addictive stage and those kind of health problems have a tendency to not to show up until um, you know it used to be middle age now you know we're really seeing things like type 2 diabetes and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and diabetes emerging much earlier in development because people are being exposed to these foods for much longer stretches of their life you mentioned earlier that the concepts of food deserts and uh, the other extreme food swamps. How important is it in the, the, the food addiction process that food, it's essential. We, we, we have to eat food. We, we, we can't avoid it. I think it makes it so much harder. I really do. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, when I first started doing this work, I was working in an alcohol lab and I was just really interested in, in some of the ways I was seeing parallels between what I was studying in my alcohol addiction lab and work that was coming out on you know, neural parallels and in, in animals who were getting sugar, how much they were showing all the behavioral and biological signs of what we really thought of as addiction. And then I was treating people in a clinic who had bulimia and binge eating disorder and people who are getting ready to undergo gastric bypass. And I was like, man, this is just what I'm hearing in my in my eating world and my addiction world don't feel different to me. Like really how much are these overlapping? But I really thought you know, food, at least foods, they can't really be that bad. They're not going to be as bad. This isn't going to be as big of a deal as something like you might see with alcohol or cigarettes. I've really changed my tune. I've, you know, talked with people so much that because we all have to eat and our food environment is constantly pushing us towards the you know, highly rewarding options that our brain also finds really engaging and you know, attention grabbing, um, that you don't get to opt out in a way where you just don't have to go into the bar. You know, you have to go into the grocery store. You have to make decisions about food and you're always going to be exposed and the cues are everywhere. You know, I just was at a morning meeting and we had, you know, tons of different bagels and, you know, there'll be donuts and there'll be sweetened coffees and nobody's bringing little tiny alcohol bottles. You know, no one's sitting around next to me vaping or doing cocaine in my like 9 a.m. meeting. I'm glad to hear that, I should say, Ashley. I know academia might be a really more interesting place if that's what our 9 a.m. meetings look like, but you kind of have to be on guard constantly. And we know that addictive substances they are what makes them powerful is they grab you and they grab your attention and they make you want and they make you desire and we're trying to battle against that and some of the things that we have people do with other addictive substances is really try and minimize their cue exposure so they're not constantly battling that or in a moment of stress or tiredness or boredom you know it's not it's not right there for you you have some time to try and regulate our food environment is set up to do exactly the opposite. And so I've treated and talked to people who've had multiple different types of substance addictions, including to highly processed food. And they've said, the food is the hardest. The food has been the hardest to manage and to kick because it's constant and it's everywhere. And I, I, I can't avoid it.
And would you consequently say that that is one of the, the key things that distinguishes food addiction from other forms of addiction that you've seen, that, that it's it's omnipresent, you can't avoid it? Yes, I would say that's true. And I would say um, other substances have been that way in the past. And what we know is that policy changes are the key. So with tobacco, you know, um, it was everywhere. I have a colleague at Yale who has this box up in his office that's the Yale Medical School cigarette delivery box. Because when he was in med school, everybody was smoking, you know, was sitting around smoking in the lecture halls, talking about lung cancer. And they'd come around and they'd sell cigarettes throughout the day. You could get them at vending machines. They're being advertised. And the Flintstone cartoons were smoking cigarettes. And it was just such a intensely toxic tobacco culture. And we found that ed just educating people about how these were addictive and just kind of even developing treatments were important, but it couldn't turn back the tide on its own of an environment that was pushing this so much, particularly in the context of prioritizing industry profits over public health. And what we're seeing now with food is that you know, I, I, people aren't like, I thought Mountain Dew was a health food. I'm so confused. You know, I, I, people want to change. They want to, uh, you, they want to get a healthy relationship with food. And I, I've never seen anyone in my office or in my lab who has not tried at least a dozen different things. Um, and the environment is so toxic and powerful that the education and intervention programs um, really have a hard time competing with that. And so we can, our food environment has not always been this way. I mean, the pro about food is there is an alternative out there that's been around for, you know, millions of years, which is real, whole, nourishing foods. Um, and people don't dislike those. People don't dislike a really delicious strawberry. People don't like a really well-made, you know, um, uh, uh, roasted chicken breast. It's that um, those foods are not as convenient. Um, they're not as marketed. They're you know more expensive, and they don't have that overwhelming moorishness where you just want more and more and more and more when you eat them. And so we have to set up our environment to give the nourishing foods that we like a chance um, to compete with these. No, I would really say highly processed food substances. I, when you look at the, the ingredient list on some of the foods that's out there, you know, certain cookies and potato chips and things like that, sodas, they have more in common with alcohol and cigarettes than they do with an apple. The, the ingredient lists are processed, refined, flavor enhancers, reward augmenters in a way that I don't even, I'm a food scientist and I don't know what's in half of those foods which is scary in and of itself, frankly. We, we've talked quite a bit about the impact of these heavily processed foods and food addiction on obesity. But I'm also curious to ask about the cognitive impacts of, uh, of, of food addiction. And, and I, I guess it's probably all wrapped up with obesity as well. But can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think we are just starting to uncover this. We've been really obsessed, rightfully so. I mean, the, the change in, in rates of obesity in my lifetime um, is uh, 
startling. It's one of the biggest public health shifts you know, we've seen in a short period of time to go from where obesity was something we weren't even tracking because it was pretty rare um, to something where now in the U.S., you know, 40% of adults have obesity. And I have to say, you know, you can't look at someone's body and know their relationship with food or know their health status. There's lots of people who have a body mass index that's in the normal range that have very unhealthy relationships with food, are doing things, you know, either have a really high metabolism or are restricting or smoking at times to try and suppress their appetitive drive. And there's people with obesity who are metabolically healthy and are exercising and you know, have a, having a more nutritious, healthy relationship with food. So it's certainly not a one-to-one. However, you know, we are now also starting to understand, regardless of what your weight on the scale says, that these sorts of low quality, highly rewarding foods impact things in your gut microbiome. They impact inflammatory processes where your body's in a more constant inflammatory state, your brain's in a more constant inflammatory state, that these constant spikes and crashes and your blood glucose is really dysregulating for our body. And that this seems to have damage to parts of our brain like the hippocampus, like the memory system that helps support, you know, um, uh, our ability, our longevity to be cognitively sharp. It can impact our ability to use cognitive control and executive functioning. And I worry about this a lot in the context of children whose brains are developing, they're more vulnerable. And in the United States, children who have food insecurity, who are in poorer neighborhoods, I mean, what they have to subsist on to get calories are these sorts of foods that are not only highly rewarding, but activating inflammatory practices, processes, potentially damaging their cognitive um, um, circuitry in the brain. That just feels like a massive social justice issue that is so unfair that some of our most vulnerable children are being aggressively targeted to to push these sorts of products. Um, and I think we're also starting to understand with an aging population the role that these foods have and potentially promoting cognitive decline, dementia, Alzheimer's disease in a way that we're just starting to scratch the surface. Plus, depression and anxiety, the mental health crisis that we're currently dealing with, we're only starting to scratch the surface of how these foods um, damage you know, the way that our, our, our body and our minds are so intertwined that if your body is inflamed and spiking and crashing and it's impacting your the way that you're able to operate through life and regulate your emotions, there's some longitudinal evidence to suggest that these sorts of foods are promoting things like anxiety and depression. And so really altering our relationship with food on an environmental level where nourishing whole real foods start to become the default and the norm um, is maybe going to really have an impact across a whole range of mental as well as physical health conditions. So I gather from what you're saying that from a public health perspective, when we think about not just the impact on obesity, but also the cognitive impacts that you were talking about, it's actually vital that that really we should do something about tackling food addiction, just as we did with uh, with with tobacco and and nicotine many years ago. A hundred percent. That's a hundred percent true. And you know, I think sometimes we we kind of forget how far we've gotten from um, you know kind of the optimal environments that supported the development of this human species. You know, and like nourishing food clean water, a sense of community, a sense of connection, a sense of purpose, um, sleep, 
all of these sorts of things in the modern environment have um, become more elusive, um, particularly if you're not rich. And we are seeing, I think, crises among so many levels, whether it's deaths of despair and our physical well-being and emotional well-being. Um, and uh, we're seeing it younger and younger. You know, we're seeing it in our children. We're seeing it in our teens. We have to take a step back and I think look really holistic at what helps us flourish. And it food has to be part of that equation. Um, among many other things like you know a sense of deep social connection exercise is so key to our well-being um, and i think we we are having a hard time prioritizing those things in an environment um, where we're all time poor and uh there's a lot of pressure to be doing a million things and a lot of these nourishing activities take time um, and instead, I feel like what's happening is capitalism is giving us quick fixes for all of these things, you know, of, oh, you know, just, you know, you don't have time to eat, so uh, you just nuke this in the microwave and shove it in your face. Oh, you don't have time to actually have a meaningful conversation with a friend, just like their post. And, and we're forgetting what we actually need to flourish. And layer on top of that, the point that you made earlier in the conversation about uh, food retailers, food manufacturers consciously targeting that 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 sweet spot uh, in order to take advantage of food addiction to build their customer base. A hundred percent. I mean, if you wouldn't trust big tobacco uh, to sell your children cigarettes, you know, where they're certainly using the same playbook and um, you know was were the same companies for decades uh, and still are in some cases. Like big tobacco is not out of the food game. Um, you know, we we have to treat these industrial practices for what they are, which is to make the most profits possible. That's They're not public health agencies. Um, so we have to have something that is trying to have a common sense approach to balance that out, or we pay the price. You know, it's the consumer, it's the individual that pays the price of, um, you know, just runaway industrial profits. Absolutely. If people wanted to find out more about your research, where can they go? So I have a lab website and um, on there you can see the scales we've developed, you can see links to our research. Um, every paper that we can have publicly available based on journal rules, we try to have publicly available. Um, there's lots of talks I've done in different media um, outlets that you can read to, that should be accessible to learn more about our research. And um, you, I hope that, that that will be helpful to kind of giving a, a wide range of the work that we do in this area. That sounds great. And uh, we will, of course, make sure to include some links in the uh, show notes. Professor Ashley Gerhardt of the University of Michigan, thank you very much for your time. It's been great speaking to you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.